So during the 1960s, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which was formerly known as Zaire or the Belgian Congo, it was, uh, it was in great turmoil. So after years of corrupt colonial rule, the Belgians had pulled out and withdrawn, and they had left warring ethnic groups to, to sort of faction and to fight amongst one another for control of the new nation. And caught up in all of that turbulence were hundreds of missionaries. And one of them was a 20-year-old American bachelor named Bill McChesney. And on, he was on, Bill McChesney was on his very first missionary journey. He was 5'2", tipping the scales at just over 120 pounds. But what he lacked in stature, he made up for with a, with a sunny and exuberant disposition. So he was known as, as Smiling Bill. That's how everyone referred to him. And yet as that country descended into chaos, the Simba rebels, Simba rebels gained the upper hand and, and they took a host of missionaries and, and held them captive from, from Belgium and from England and from America and they kept them in their villages and the rebels would arrive on occasion and they would conduct mock executions just as a form of psychological warfare against them. And yet in one November morning, they did come, and, and this time it wasn't a rehearsal. They had grabbed Bill, and Bill at this point was weakened with malaria, and they tossed his ragged body in the back of a truck, and his friend Jim, who was a British missionary, seeing the poor state he was in and not wanting to leave his friend alone, he just got up and jumped into the back of the truck with Bill. But there the rebels beat Bill so badly, by the time they arrived sort of at the prison camp, Bill couldn't even get out of the truck. He couldn't make his way to the cell. Jim had to carry him there. And yet they weren't there long when they were called back out into the square. And the colonel tried to separate the two of them. Apparently, Jim being a, a British man, they didn't want to harm Jim. Um, but Jim refused to leave his friend. And so the colonel motioned, and the mob descended. And in his weakened state, Bill was killed almost instantly. Jim immediately came to the aid of his friend until the mob descended upon him as well with savage blows. And it, when, when it was all over, Bill and Jim lay dead with nearly 30 other missionaries as well. And their bodies were taken to the Wamba River and they were tossed into the river to be torn apart by crocodiles. And friends, it's in moments like that, when you read history like that, recounted by folks who were there when you have to ask some hard questions. Like, where was God in all of this? Some may read such events as proof that there is no God. But yet I think for many, they'll be left wondering how something like this, even if there is, is a God, how can that be in accord with God's plans? Right? Does, does God even have a plan? Can he even get his way? Does God, even more personally, does he have a plan for me? What might that plan look like? Is that plan good? Can God see that plan come to pass? My friends, it's questions like this that bring us back to our text this morning in Ephesians 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there. Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 13. Uh, if you don't happen to own a Bible, no fear, we have Bibles there, red Bibles and the, the seat backs before you, and you can find our text on page 977, page 977. Now, we've been out of Ephesians for a few weeks, but just to recall, the Apostle Paul had visited the city of Ephesus. 
He had preached the good news of Christianity there. He had planted a church there, and he had spent years among them, living among them and laboring with them, loving on them. He had done all of that. And yet it was during a visit back to Jerusalem where he had been arrested, and he had been imprisoned, and then while he's awaiting trial, he's shipped off to Rome, and he's been in prison now some three years. And that's how long his imprisonment has drug on. And no doubt those Ephesian Christians are beginning to wonder, right, how can this be all part of God's plan? I mean, Paul is their, is their beloved pastor, their leader, one who was betrayed by his own people. You know, is, is Paul really God's messenger? Maybe some of them are wondering. Should we be looking for someone else? You know, and if Paul really is God's messenger, if he really is Christ's spokesperson, what does it mean that he seems to be held captive to Rome? Does this mean that God has to yield to the powers of Rome in some way? Perhaps this Jesus character and his kingdom, maybe it's all, it's not cracked up to be. And we need to go back to our Roman gods. And so Paul pens Ephesians from his Roman cell, and in chapter 1, he reminds them of great and glorious spiritual truths. Right? The fathers elected them, the sons redeemed them, the Holy Spirit is sealed and secured them, and these are blessings they possess in Christ, and nobody can take those blessings away. And he gets on in chapter 2, and he highlights, Paul does, how in reconciling these Gentiles to God, he has also reconciled them to one another, Gentile to Gentile and Gentile to Jew. And so Paul begins in chapter 3, verse 1, and he picks up this thought for this reason, because of this reconciliation, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then notice there's a break there in your text. Paul is beginning to launch into his prayer, but it seems the mention of his suffering for the Gentiles causes him to stop. Now, he's going to pick up his prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. Notice he picks up the same language for this reason, and then we get his prayer. But he digresses in verses 2 through verses 13. He digresses there, and he speaks about the personal nature of God's plans and what God is really doing behind the scenes to have a people for himself. And these verses really 1 through 13, are dominated by, sort of by two long sentences in the Greek. So verse 2 to 7 is one long sentence, and verse 8 to 12 is another long sentence. And then there's this concluding sentence, verse 13. And what we'll see as we read here in a second, in verses 2 to 7, we see how Paul has come to know something. Something's been revealed to him. He's called to know something, and then in, in 8 to 12, he's called to preach something. So we've got this revelation in 2 to 7 that's going to lead to proclamation in verses 8 to 12, and all that is meant to bring consolation to these Ephesian Christians. So that's sort of the movement, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. You have this revelation, which leads to proclamation, which results in consolation. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So just stop there. You may be wondering, how, why is Paul wondering if they've heard of it? Well, he's been gone for three years. So it's very possible that many have come to faith during that time. Some may not have known much about Paul's ministry among them. So he's seeking to remind them, help bring them 
to recollect what they may have forgotten or what others may need to learn. So he's saying, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, so what does Paul's own imprisonment teach us? Of some, what does it teach about the kind of plans that, that God has? Because God very much has plans, as we come to see in our text. And I think we come to see really four things. Could say more. I had five. And then I looked at my word count, and I cut it down. We're going to think about four this morning. Number one, his plans are personal. Two, they're purposeful. Three, they're progressive. And four, they are proclaimed. So those are the four things I want us to think about this morning of the nature of God's plans. They're personal. They're purposeful, they're progressive, we'll see what we mean by that, and they're proclaimed. So first, let's pick up. God's plans are first, they're personal. They're personal in the sense that God deals with us intimately as individuals. He deals with us as individuals. So the God of the Bible, just to be really clear, is not a deist. Now, many of our nation's founding fathers, guys like Jefferson and Franklin and Madison and probably Adams held to some form of deism, this notion that, that God was sort of a divine clockmaker and he sort of created this clock of creation and he wound it up and now he's just letting it run its course. In other words, he's very hands-off. He doesn't get involved in the affairs of men. He doesn't break in and interrupt things. He keeps away, hands-off to run on its own. Now, that notion of God, one who's not involved personally and practically in the lives of his people, that kind of a God is utterly foreign to the Bible. Or we see right here, God's plans, in fact, are deeply personal. Right? Notice all the personal pronouns that open up emphatically. Paul says, I, Paul. Right? I, Paul. And then he speaks in verse 2 of God's grace that was given, not abstractly, but he says this particular grace given to him given to me. In verse 3, he speaks of the mystery, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation. In verse 7, he returns back to this idea how, how I, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, repeating verse 2. 
And of course, none of this should surprise us because if we remember Acts 9, it was there that Paul on the road to Damascus had a very real and powerful encounter with the personal Jesus Christ, with the risen Jesus Christ. Friends, Christianity, it's not an abstract religion. It's not a religion of mere dogmas or, or cold theological formulas. Christianity, Christianity pulsates in personal relationships with this living God. All throughout Scripture, that's how God has worked. His plans have been very much worked out in the individual lives of his people. So whether it was a despairing Abraham or, or a fearful Moses, whether it was a, a penitent David, you have a, a pregnant Mary, a very proud Saul before he becomes Paul. God has made us and he desires to be in relationship with us. He didn't drop a book on earth and say, hey, now you can read something about me. No, he took upon flesh. He became one of us. He lived among us and now dwells in us through his spirit. All right, it's, it's personal, God's plans are deeply personal, but they're personal in a second way, in a slightly different way in that. And they're personal in that they're fundamentally about the person of Jesus Christ. His plans are about Christ. All right, so Paul will write in verse 4 that this gospel mystery, it's a mystery of Christ. Right? Christ is the source. Christ is the substance. Jew and Gentile, verse 6, they're only partakers of this promise so long as they're what? In Christ. And that expression, in Christ, should, should cause to, your, your mind to recall all those references, maybe a dozen or so references of, of being in Christ back in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Verse 11, even the eternal purpose of God, his, this unfolding mystery has been realized, what? Realized in Christ Jesus, which is why verse 12, Paul says it's in him, right? It's in him and through faith in him that we have boldness and confident access to God. So does God desire us to be in personal relationship with him? Absolutely. But only insofar as we, we engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is because the basic message of the Bible, it, it's that we're naturally, none of us are naturally in a right relationship with God. None of us are naturally on good terms with God. We're sinners, the Bible says, which means naturally we do what we want to do, not what God would have us to do. We, we pursue our own way by instinct, by choice. We don't pursue God's ways. You know, so we know we shouldn't do that hurtful thing, but we do it anyway. We know we shouldn't say that hurtful thing, but we say it anyway. And we ask, why do we do that? And sometimes we have answers. You know, it felt good. It seemed right. I wanted to do it. Other times we're like, I don't know. Sin doesn't make sense. We don't always have answers, but it defines us nonetheless. And the consequence, the Bible says, of our own rebellion is death. It's death physically. It's death spiritually. And yet the message of the Bible is that because God is gracious, and we've been singing about this morning, that he sent his only son to live among us, to die for us as a substitute there on the cross. Jesus bearing the weight of our own guilt and shame. The sins we should have died for, he died in our place for all of those who would walk away from their sin. What the Bible says, repent, turn away, and to trust in him. For those, Jesus bled and died, and he makes them new again. 
And that's the basic message of the gospel. You know, one pastor put it this way. He said, it's the message that we are, in fact, way more broken and messed up than we ever dared to believe. And yet, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can, in fact, be far more loved and far more accepted than we would ever dare hope. And if you've come and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's part of what God wants you to see. That's how you know him. It's in and through Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. If you have a friend that brought you, talk with them. Talk with anyone on the doors on the way out. Right? We exist because we think a relationship with Jesus Christ is foundational. We can't know God any other way than through Christ. Now, the great promise is that by believing, Paul says, by believing, right, in and through having faith in and through this Jesus Christ, we can all come and we can have confident access to God. What had been denied us now is afforded us through Jesus Christ. And that promise is open to anyone, which means we can come to God this morning. We don't need a priest to pray for us. We don't need a mediator like Israel used to need in the Old Testament. We don't need a middleman. We don't need some sort of spiritual shaman or something to, to bring our request to God. No, we alone can go to God. You know, you may have heard this doctrine. It's called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers that we're offered universal access to God through the person and work of Christ. Right? It's 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. But friend, just recognize that truth, and that is a glorious truth, and we got to celebrate it. That truth doesn't mean that we live alone and accountable to no one. Sometimes, and I'm just speaking to Baptists here, because sometimes, and I've read some Baptists, they have abused this doctrine in this way, and they've said that the priesthood of all believers can give Christians really the right and the freedom to determine their own beliefs and to shape their own doctrine, and to shape their own spirituality without being accountable to anyone else. But it's because that's an abuse of the doctrine. It is to say, rather, that we are all in Christ, offered universal access to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, because God's plans are personal. They're personal. But there's a second thing I want us to see. Yes, they're personal, but also they're purposeful, right? So they're purposeful. Second thing to see. Now, to us, you've lived long enough, sometimes God's plans appear random. They appear haphazard, as if there's perhaps no rhyme or reason behind God's plans. So I recall how excited I was back in 99, 1999 that is, um, to, to make a shift out of sort of the investing world at the time and into the dot-com world. So I was making this shift dot-com startup. This was the late 90s after all. Dot-coms were in full bloom. Everyone wanted a piece of the action. I got in on it. And so my wife and I, we moved from, from Maryland down to Virginia, only to learn at that moment that my wife was surprisingly pregnant, which wasn't actually part of our plan because she was in the middle of a master's program at Johns Hopkins University. And so we had to talk through it, we had to think through it, and we eventually came to the conclusion that at the moment it would probably be best if she were to pull out of that program. We had rising debt, we weren't quite sure how we were going to service that debt, particularly with the baby and work schedules and the rest, so we thought maybe we, we ought to pull her out, and so she dropped that, it was tough, we thought it was the right decision. And then, a few months later, we lose the baby, and then it was a month later that I lost my job. And friends, we were crushed. 
We were confused. I did not understand what, what God was doing. You know, I'm sitting in an unemployment line in a city that is new to me, and I don't know. I don't have a job. We don't have a baby. There is no master's program. Family's 3,000 miles the other way. And my wife and I are wondering, what in the world is God doing? It didn't feel like he had any real and clear plans for us. No rhyme or reason to them. And friend, maybe you can relate. You know, maybe this morning you find yourself in a similarly difficult situation. Maybe you find yourself even despairing this morning, and you're wondering, how can what I'm going through be part of God's plan? You know, we all know Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And I knew that verse was true, but that verse didn't come as great consolation to me in that moment. How can this be part of God's plan for me? You know, how could this be part of God's plan for Paul? Paul in prison. You know, the, the tides of persecution are, are rising. Their beloved pastor's not there. He's been away now for years. And friends, God's plans for all of us, they're going to differ. Concrete plans we'll have, they will differ for us all. But, but there's one thing that's given to Paul, and one thing we see in the scriptures that we too receive, and that's a stewardship. It's a stewardship. Notice Notice what Paul says. He writes in prison for them, verse 2, he says, assuming you've heard of what? Of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Now that word stewardship is used of an estate manager, of someone who attends and someone who oversees all of his master's business. And the concern of the steward, of course, is not to make his name great, but to make his master's name great. Right? The steward's not trying to further his own interests, He's trying to further his master's interests. Now, Paul's stewardship was unique in that he was uniquely set apart by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he'll write in verse 7, of this gospel, I was made literally a diakonos, where we get our word deacon. And I think the ESV says minister, but the CSB, other modern translations, just say servant. That's a good translation. He's saying, of this gospel, I was made a servant. Christians are servants, not masters. It's not ours to be served, but ours to serve after our Savior who what served and gave his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's the stewardship that God gives to us, right? We're stewards, stewards and servants of God's grace. So how do you view the Christian life this morning? As you think about God's own purposes for you, sometimes I think the dissonance that can come in our own hearts is we misunderstand, in part, what God's purposes are. And Paul's life and our lives, as we'll see, right, stewards and servants, that's God's purpose. But I wonder if you expect to be served, maybe by your friends, by your spouse, by this church, do you come in wondering what people are going to do for you? Or do you come with the attitude seeking to be a blessing to others? I think Paul's in prison. And maybe the Ephesians have forgotten why Paul's in prison. If you've read, read Acts 21, Paul's in prison because while he was in Jerusalem, what did he do? He took an Ephesian man, it's claimed, into the temple, a place that he was forbidden. Now, whether or not Paul did this, we actually don't know. It's what the Jews claimed he did. And it's possible he did. We saw last, well, three weeks ago, that, that 
the gospel has broken down that dividing wall. So perhaps to make a, a sort of physical point, Paul did seek to bring this Ephesian man, Trophimus, into the temple. We're not sure, but it was that act that caused him to be arrested and imprisoned and kept there in Jerusalem and now sent off to Rome. So it's why he bookends this whole section, 3.1 to 3.13. He says all that he's doing is on behalf of them and for them. Paul's imprisonment. He's trying to help them see far from invalidating his ministry, it's just the opposite. Paul is in prison because of his unwavering commitment to fulfill God's plan as what? As both a steward and a servant. Because he understands that's what his purpose is. And friend, that's the, the very nature of the Christian life. The very nature of the Christian life. That we make ourselves captive to Christ. That we become his prisoners. So that, why? So that our lives can be poured out for others. To be a blessing to others. That was Paul's purpose. That's our purpose. Which means if you have come this morning and you, you fundamentally understand that the purpose of the Christian life is to make you whole. You know, how you can become the, the healthiest and the happiest and the most fulfilled version of you. As one Christian book that was launched this week, that was sort of how it was advertised. You know, the, the most happy and healthy and fulfilled version of you. If that's how you understand Christianity, I recognize you've embraced something. But I want to help you see, according to scriptures, you actually haven't embraced Christianity in that message. That's not the message of Christianity. That's just some secular self-help and a little Jesus sprinkled on top. That's all that is. Christianity calls us to prioritize the needs of others before our own. Now, of course, in order to be able to do that, we have to give some time and attention to ourselves. We have to give time to our own spiritual lives. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to care for ourselves so that we have something to pour out to others. But the principal question that we have to ask in our own spiritual lives is not, am I making my name great? The principal question we're asking is not, how can I leave a legacy? But how can I make Jesus' name great by investing his name in the lives of other people? But it's not a personal legacy. It's a gospel legacy Paul is seeking to leave. You know, on a side note, if we think of some of the, the Christian men and women, but I think particularly of men in recent months who, who have suffered from ministries and fallen from ministries, I think oftentimes the sad reality is that over time they forgot that truth. They forgot that what God had called them to was not to establish a personal legacy, but a gospel legacy. And in the end, the Lord tripped them up and they fell as a result. But even there in prison, Paul is able to fulfill God's purposes to him as a steward, as a servant of the Gentiles. And friend, in whatever situation you're in this morning, whatever situation you're in, Make no mistake, God intends for you to do the same because he has purpose behind his plans. He knows what he's doing. Well, there's a third truth I also want us to see. Yes, his plans are personal, they're purposeful, but this third idea is that they're progressive. They're progressive, as in they unfold over time. Now, this is what Paul's actually highlighting, and that recurring word mystery that really dominates the section now, you hear that word mystery, and maybe some of you think mystery, like an Agatha Christie novel, or, I don't know, 
was it P.D. James, I think was another mystery novelist? At any rate, maybe you think of something like that, something spooky. I don't know what you think when you think of mystery novels. I confess I didn't read many of them. But in the Bible, a mystery isn't like a whodunit kind of novel. That's not what a mystery is. A mystery is something that would have been previously obscured, but now made known. So previously obscured, now made known. And Paul defines, what is this mystery he's been talking about? He introduced it back in 1.9, but then he makes it clear in chapter 3, verse 6, when he says this mystery is what? Well, it's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And what's really fun is he actually just makes up a word in this. Like in the Greek, he takes these ideas of family and, and body and inheritance, and he just he puts like the prefix together with them. And one of those words doesn't exist. So it's, I don't know, if you, if you remember President Bush, he had this uncanny ability to, to utter Bushisms. So there are words that don't really exist in the English language, but when he speaks it, we know what he means, and it was slightly embarrassing and also endearing. So I think it was in 2006, he's up in Bentonville, Northwest Arkansas, and he's speaking about, um, he's so misunderestimated. And yeah, exactly, you can see the reporters sort of pause, and they look up from their pens, they're quizzically like, misunderestimated? Misunderestimated. Well, yeah, it's not a word, but we know what he means. Right? He's misunderstood, and he's underestimated. He's made up a word. Okay, well, Paul kind of does that when he talks about some of these ideas of how the Jews and the Gentiles have been brought together because there wasn't anything in Greek that could speak to it, and so Paul makes up language to drive home that point, to drive it home. And it's why he says, as he speaks about this mystery, it's why he says he's written them briefly about it. He says up there in verse 3, this is what I've been about. I've been writing this briefly to you. And again, he's highlighting what he started in one nine, and I think what he makes even clearer back up in 2.19, that there are, the Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, as he says, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. And this, Paul says, is what God has revealed progressively over time. For it was, as he says, verse 5, not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, if you read that this week, that may have at first confused you. So, not made known. But doesn't the Old Testament speak to a plan for the Gentiles? I mean, Genesis 12, wasn't Abraham to be a blessing to the nations? I mean, Cole is preaching from Psalm 2. And what does Psalm 2.8 remind us of? That the Messiah would have the nations as his inheritance? You know, Diana read Isaiah 25. What does Isaiah 25 earlier in the service speaks to the nations, God having a plan for the nations? And all that's true, but I don't think what was clear, what wouldn't have been clear to any first century Jew was the radical nature of God's plan. So no Jew expected the theocracy of Israel to be terminated. No Jew expected sort of those Jewish identity markers like circumcision and food laws to be eradicated. Jews believed that Gentiles would come to Jerusalem. They would come to us so that they could become like us. They would become Jews. But Paul's revealing that God's plan, in fact, all along, was not that the nations would come to Israel, but that the true Israel of God would go out to the nations. That's God's purpose. That in the uniting of Jew and Gentile into one body, 
right? Their ethnic identity being replaced by a, a deeper spiritual identity that transcends all those ethnic and political boundaries, that's in fact the plan that God has been about all along. So you can think about a, the Bible like a room, and this room is gloriously furnished. There's awesome stuff in there. The problem is when we open up the Old Testament, the room's largely dark. So there are some candles, and we see some things really clearly, but on the whole, much of the furniture in the room is obscured. It's back in the shadows. We don't see it clearly. And yet as we move through the Old Testament, it's as if God's got his finger on the dimmer switch, and he's starting to push it up, and things in the shadows are beginning to take shape and beginning to take form. And in the unfolding of God's plan as we come to the New Testament and as we come to Christ, right, that, with the coming of Christ, he flicks the light on and then we see it all. We see it all in dazzling clarity in that moment. And what Paul and others are beginning to realize is it, it's not like the Jews were plan A, but they kept messing up and God finally said, you know what, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to plan B and maybe the Gentiles can do a little bit better with the grace I'm going to show them. That's actually not what he's saying. No, ethnic Israel was to be preparation for the consummation of all of God's purposes in the church. What Paul refers to in Galatians 6 is the new Israel of God as he unites Jew and Gentile into one new humanity and one new community. Now, if that's kind of news to you, if perhaps that's new to you, you want to think more about that, we have at 9 o'clock these adult Bible fellowships, think of them like Sunday school, and there is one going on right now called Biblical Theology, where it's trying to trace the unfolding nature of God's plan throughout the scriptures so that you can come to your Bible and read the Bible and not feel like you're stuck in the shadows and the darkness, but read it like the lights are turned on. And if you want to think more about that, I welcome that class. Just go along 9 o'clock, and it meets over in the chapel. All right. But there's a critical, though, and a fourth and final thing I want us to see about God's plans. So that is they're proclaimed. God's plans are proclaimed. And in the text, we see very two distinct ways God intends his plans to be proclaimed. First, through the preached word. That's really clear. He's got plans. He's making them clear. They're meant to be preached, the preached word. Paul says, verse 8, he's received grace for two purposes, he says, to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and, relatedly, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this gospel mystery. So the truth that has been revealed to Paul is the truth that Paul is going to preach. This revelation that's come leads to proclamation. Friends, I hope you see God's grace is not simply something you experience. It's something God intends for you to exercise and to share with others. And that gospel message, note what Paul says, that gospel message is great news. It is wonderful news. Not that we're sinners, that's true, but it doesn't end there. He speaks of the unsearchable. He uses a word that sort of is, most of our English translations struggle to, to put their finger on. He speaks of the riches as unsearchable, as unfathomable, as incalculable. I think the NIV might say boundless riches. Oh, friend, I wonder if, is that the Christ you preach? A Christ of unsearchable riches, of unfathomable riches and wealth and blessing. Is that the Christ you know? You think of Christ, is that the Christ you think about? The, the Christ of unsearchable riches. 
The Christ of, of saving riches. The Christ of sanctifying riches. The Christ of relational riches. The Christ of very practical riches. The Christ of eternal riches. Do you know that Christ? When you talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that the, the kind of tone and tenor and the goodness of this incalculable, unsearchable riches of Christ that you share? Friends, riches that can't be lost, riches that can't be taken away, that can't be stolen, riches that only multiply with time. Friend, Christ never impoverishes those who put their faith in him. Paul is in prison, and yet he looks at his circumstances, and all he sees are the incalculable riches of Christ. Make sure that that is the gospel, that is the Jesus you know, because that's what he's laid out for us in Scripture, one who possesses incalculable riches and blessing. But notice in that proclamation, that's not all he says about this Jesus. Yes, he's incalculable riches, but in his proclamation, in his proclamation, his concern is to bring light, right? It's to shed to light what is this plan and mystery. That's his, that's his desire, to bring it to light, not merely to bring heat, but to bring light into the conversation. And I say that because sometimes Christians, when they start talking about the gospel or Christianity, they seek to be heard by raising their voices, by getting really loud, sometimes even belligerent. But Paul doesn't say that he proclaims the gospel through human intimidation. That's not his method. He says he seeks to proclaim this gospel not through human intimidation, but through divine illumination. He wants to shed light, help them see, help them understand. You know, I just came back from the Southern Baptist Convention. The staff did. And one of the things you hear is you hear a number of sermons, and one thing that is clear from those sermons is the best way to get an applause, the best way to get a hearty amen is just to talk really loud. And it's like we're dogs, we're trained, and we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friend, I hope you, that's not Paul. His concern is not simply heat, it's to shed light. Because that might work. Like, I can get all riled up in here. You figured out by now, that's really not my nature. So if you like that, I'm sorry. Um, it's not really my nature anyway. But, but we might be able to do that in here. But if we get riled up like that out there in the world, we've got to remember, friends, hearts aren't won. Hearts aren't won over by raising our voices or by heightening our rhetoric. That's not how they're won over. It's by God bringing light through his word. Right? We're after light, as Paul is, not just heat. But God's plans are proclaimed also, not only through the preached word, but in a very important second way, namely through public witness. So he preaches the word, yes, but then he speaks to public witness, through our public witness. Because Paul's preached word serves, verse 10, an even higher purpose. He writes, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The image he's, he's creating here is that of sort of angelic and demonic beings all up in the heavens, faces plastered against sort of a glass to see what in the world God is doing in the world. They're placed up desperately trying to understand what is God about. They don't know. They don't see it. Right? They're up in the heavens and they're looking over the railing, so to speak, leaning over, peering down. What is God doing in the world? That's the picture here. 
They want to glimpse it. They're desperate for it. And where does Paul say that divine drama is being acted out? Does Paul say that drama is being acted out through passion conferences or if gatherings? It's actually not what he says. Does he say it's through winter jam? That's like the Christian version of Lollapalooza. No, not what he says. Does he say it's through private sort of holy clubs or, or some kind of cell group gatherings? No, that's not what he says. Does he even say it's through weekly Bible studies where you may hear someone share or listen to some teaching? Actually, it's not there even. Many of those things are well and good, but it's not through conferences, he says. It's not through concerts. It's not through our own convention. And if you were there, you can praise God for it, right? It's not through that. God says he's going to make his manifold wisdom made known to the to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, by what means? He says, by the church. That's the means, by the church. Local churches where the invisible church is made visible together. That's the means. It's in all of us who gather as members of UBC, what we're doing right now as we hear the word together and then seek to live that word out with one another. That is actually God's grand design to display his glory to the nations to display his glory to the heavenly beings who have been kept out and are not known. Now they're seeing it lived out through the church. You can just think of Satan and the demonic angels thinking perhaps of the crucifixion of Christ and in the ashes of that persecution that they had won. And then out of that ash rises a church of Jew and Gentile and the realization that, oh my word, God is actually doing something greater. He's doing something bigger. Oh, my friend, I think many of us have bought into the notion that Christianity is really just about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. And it is about that, and it needs to be at least about that. But the Bible doesn't actually have a concept of Christianity that remains and stops at simply me and Jesus. Paul's been laboring in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, this whole gospel mystery, He's been at pains to make clear it is not simply about God saving me, but about God saving me into a new community, into a new humanity. And that's the significance of me. If I am rooted in that people, in that community, that's the meaning of history in that sense, is the church. It's how he saves us as individuals in order to unite us formally to others. And not because we simply have shared interests in common. You know, we were teaching the new member class this week, the discovery class on Wednesday. I'm dialoguing with the folks who are there about these things. And just noting, you know, many, many churches seek to, uh, to identify themselves, and they'll do so through perhaps similar life experiences. So they'll seek to attract, like, all the young millennial professionals or the college students. Or maybe they'll sort of they'll gather around similar identities, like cowboy churches Visual arts churches, similar social positions, you know, church, like the church for conservatives, like that's where you go. The church, if you're a social justice warrior, you go over there. But the key question, friends, is not whether our churches gather around demographic realities, but whether they gather around gospel realities. And sadly, I fear in our churches that we are often creating community that would exist even if God didn't. And friends, what does that say about our churches? That manifold wisdom means multicolored. It's the word that's used to refer to Joseph's coat of many colors. It's to be a picture 
of the kind of people that ought to comprise our local churches. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, as the Lord would give us, as the Lord would give us them. Because the nature of gospel community, of true gospel community that Jesus creates, not the stuff we can create by man-made beings, but the kind of community that Jesus creates is that we, people we hang out with and the people we share life with, they don't merely have the same interests. We hang out with lots of other people because we actually share something deeper in common, and that's Jesus. And that's supernatural community. And that's the kind of community that the gospel makes visible. That makes, rather, I should say, the gospel visible. So loving relationships of diverse people that have nothing in common except Jesus. And that's where the gospel is made known. That's where people can see it. Because UN resolutions can't accomplish that. Military campaigns can't accomplish that. Mere Christians evangelizing folks individually won't accomplish that. Christians in churches living in community together like this, that's what accomplishes God's mean and God's task. Which means, my friends, if you're not committed to a local church, you need to be. It's not optional. It is essential. Ask yourself, if God has not abandoned his church, why would you? Will you continue to treat so lightly what God clearly takes so seriously. Now, many of you have committed to a church, but I wonder, is that, is that church central to your own relationship with Jesus Christ? Is the church central to your discipling of others and to your discipleship of Jesus Christ? Or have other commitments, maybe even really good commitments, have those commitments begun to push the church out into the periphery of your life? You know, if the central purpose of God's plan is to make his glory known in the church, then shouldn't the church be central to your own life? Why would you push to the circumference what God means to have at the center? You know, and if the church is God's discipling program, which it is in the New Testament, long term, is keeping the church at arm's length, is that going to be good for you practically? Is it going to be good for you spiritually to regularly schedule your life so you have to miss many Sunday mornings or so that you can never come to a Sunday evening gathering? How, after not at some point, will that not cause spiritual harm to you, at least hinder your development in Christ? You know, some of you this morning, you may need to reevaluate your own commitments and how you've ordered your lives so that you can more similarly align your values with the values that Jesus has for the church. And it means, friends, if we're here and if we're gathering as God's church, we got to be all in. That's why we gather. We should, you should sing lustily. I recognize this isn't a performance where you watch them. No. They sing and you sing. We sing together. We pray fervently. We, we listen attentively to the word being preached. And then we walk out these doors and we seek to live these truths out faithfully with one another. Because this community, and it looks often feeble and inconsequential to the world, and yet nonetheless, it is the one institution God has established in Christ to display his glory, and he means us to be part of it. You know, John Stott has a wonderful quote. He says, it's as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play. He directs it. He produces it act by act, scene by scene. The story continues to unfold. But who's the audience? Well, they are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
we are to think of them as spectators in the drama of salvation. Thus, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. Oh, friend, if God has you in the cast of that play, then you must be committed to living out your lives in the context of a local church. That's God's design. That's his plan. He doesn't have another one. But that being said, oftentimes, you know, we opened, we've thought through God's plans. Those plans clear. His other plans for us, they often seem obscure to us. And so I noted that story. You may be like, why'd you bring up that story about you and your wife and everything and not finish it? I'm going to finish it. You know, because we sat, and we sat without a baby, without a job, without a school uh, program, without any kind of a plan. We didn't know what we were going to do. But, you know, in God's funny providence, just how he works, it was also in that time that I was actually reading through this book of Ephesians. And it was in that time that I was reading through Ephesians chapter 3. And I came to these verses, chapter 3, particularly verse 10. And I had never been a member of a church. I'd never been formally committed to a church. And yet it was no accident that there I was without a plan in the world, observing God's plans. And just so happened at that time, I was invited to a church that had thought about these things clearly, and the rest is history. The rest is God's goodness to me. I didn't know what God was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, friends, we think about the Democratic Republic of Congo. We think about Bill McChesney. Think about Jim who lost their lives. And during that season in the 1960s, thousands of Christians were killed and were persecuted. And yet, God, in his strange and mysterious providence, as they poured out their lives as a drink offering, as Paul would, at that time, there were just a few percent evangelical, and it would be years later, Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, boasts over a quarter of their population to evangelical Christians. And yet, God's plan even for their lives, it takes us right back to Paul's own life. Because Paul there in prison is actually himself going to be called to make that ultimate sacrifice as one who was a steward, one who was a servant. And it's because God was faithful to Paul. Paul was faithful to him. He saw the incalculable riches of Christ, and he knew every ounce of his life was worth being spent for Jesus. And because Paul was faithful to that stewardship, we are here And we are talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ. God's purposes, they're often hidden to us. But it's exactly then, in a text like this, we're reminded they are nonetheless deeply personal. They're purposeful. God knows what he's doing. They're progressive. They do unfold over time, and yet he intends us to proclaim them through our words and through our community together. Friends, I hope you see God has plans. He has wonderful plans. The question is, what part are you playing? What part are you playing? Let's pray.